0: Welcome to The Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount, and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of The Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking with Sean McCadden of Remodel My Business, Inc., Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Tim Fowler and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. Just a quick reminder for everybody that if you have ideas about topics or guests you'd like to see us have on this show, uh, shoot me an email at tim at remodelersadvantage.com Give me some ideas and we'll continue to bring you some of the best in podcasts that we can give you uh, over the years. So about 20 years ago. Uh, I got started doing consulting through a lot of different things that that happened in my life. And as I see it, I was one of the first to kind of get into the consulting world for Remodeler. It was a really small group of people that actually did this as a profession. Now, most of the people that I encountered were focused on sales, marketing, or How do you run a remodeling business? And I was one of the few that focused in on the production management side of it. And back then, quite honestly, it was mostly lead carpenter system. So the business ownership, the marketing, the sales, really, really critical to make a business work. But companies that focused mostly on that and they didn't think about how does the production strategy fit in with everything else that we're doing? Have never done very well. They've always struggled because uh, it just, you need every aspect of this. And so, one of the consultant trainers that I have uh, really thought has done a great job of bringing the two together is Sean McCadden, and I'm really excited about having him on the show. I think he's done a great job of helping business owners with all the stuff like markup, margin, hiring, training, those kinds of things. But he also brings to the table this great experience that he had with his company around the lead carpenter system and what makes production work well. So Sean and I met, I believe, for the first time at a JLC live show in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I think Sean had just finished doing one of the first study groups for the lead carpenter uh, certification through NARI. And I had been involved in helping to put that together and I'd heard about this guy. And so I was excited to meet him and just find out, you know, what he was all about. And we've shared a great love for the lead carpenter system for many years. And I, I, as I've tried to explain to people, production is production. The lead carpenter system is one structure for that. If you use project managers, you still have to have kind of the same things as part of that system. So... We also found out that people think we look alike. Now, it's it's a little too bad that uh, this isn't a video uh, type podcast, but <laughs> I remember going to a couple of shows and somebody would come up to me and they'd go like, man, I really loved your seminar on spreadsheet estimating. <laughs> and I'd look at them and I'd go like, and, and where was that? And they would name some town I've never been to. And I would say, well, you know, I think you're thinking about Sean McCadden. And they go like, oh, yeah, it was Sean. It wasn't you. You. And so, Sean and I have started uh, kind of referring to each other as brothers from a different mother because we do uh, share a lot of uh, similarities, like graying a little bit and glasses and things like that. So today we really are going to have some fun picking his brain on a number of different topics and uh, just enjoying that. So,
0: yeah, Tim, when I was early in business, Sean was it was one of the first resources I found. Uh, online anywhere that really kind of spoke to the issues I was having and offered a, uh, a fix for that. And just one of the first business improvement resources around remodeling. So uh, it started there and I've been a fan ever since. So I'm really excited to get started. Let's go. Sean McCadden is the president of Remodel My Business Inc. in Brookline, New Hampshire. He's one of the most prominent figures in the remodeling industry. He obtained his builder's license by age 18, founded, operated, and sold a successful employee-managed design build firm, co-founded the Residential Design Build Institute, and went on to become the director of education for a major national bath and kitchen remodeling franchise company. Today, he speaks frequently at industry conferences and trade events. As an award-winning columnist, he contributes to many industry publications, blogs, and writes a monthly column for Qualified Remodeler magazine. You can find him at www.SeanMcHadden.com. Welcome to the show, Sean.
1: Well, thank you folks for having me here today. I really appreciate it. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to just kind of talk about business and life and all the different things that we we go on. And probably one of the biggest topics anywhere in the country is, and I, and I kind of think, talk about this tongue-in-cheap is like, we can't find good help. And so let's talk a little bit about that and kind of where do you see the future of the help uh, for this industry? What are your experiences with companies finding good help? All those kinds of things. Let's just kind of explore that area a little bit as we get started here.
2: Sure. Well, I guess perhaps one thing to uh, think about, Tim, right, is, is what are we talking about here when we say good help? Are we talking about good, conscientious employees, you know, that think ahead, maybe think like owners, and and that's what you're looking for, or are we we being more specific about the trade skills, right? So I think we're probably on the same page here, as much as we look look alike, right? Uh, One of the things, you know, I I would kind of compliment what you said earlier, Tim, that... um, I think you're probably one of the few people in the whole industry that uh, that that uh, our way of looking at the lead carpenter system, we're, we're damn near 100% in line. As far right. as I can tell, and all of our conversations, and all the things that people have shared with me about you, and, you, and what you've taught them, and all that, we're, we're on the same page here, right? So I think people really need to think about that, is, is what are you looking for when you say good help? Somebody that can know, do the carpentry work, somebody that can run a job or (laughs) somebody who's just a good person, you know, good raw material to start with. Because, you know, my my take on it, Tim, is is, uh, first off, our industry and our education system in our country is just not doing a good job, in my opinion, at all, preparing younger folks for this industry. It's just it's not happening enough. And even maybe, I don't know, a lot of the technical high school teachers out there tell me they're running babysitting programs for a lot of these kids because they can't fit anywhere else, right? So, all right, it may be the, the dredges of society you know, <laughs> could be, uh, you know, that, that we can help those folks, right? Give them a good job, give them a good direction. So, I really think that people ought to be thinking about that. Like, what are you looking for? And, you know, and here's, you know, my opinion, the, the disappointing side of this whole equation, most likely you're just not going to find a really good lead carpenter out there. Right. They just they they don't exist uh, to to enough of them. Uh, So first off, if you can find one out there, let me know, because I'd like to clone them. I think (laughs) you and I could make a ton of money. Sure thing. So I'm I'm being a little facetious. There's some good ones out there. Uh, Here's the thing, though. Um, If they're really good, uh, probably they're going to stay where they're at. Right. They're in a good company. They get to really be lead carpenters. So I think the challenge is that uh, trying to find them is is very tough, and then finding them that they're not going to be the guys who are uh, out of work and looking for a job. I think that if you really want to find a, a really good lead carpenter already trained, ready to go, you're going
1: to basically have to convince that person why they need to leave where they are and come to your business. Yeah, so what, let's I'm talk th- a little bit, Sean, about about like we're not going to find them we know that we've kind of seen those kinds of things have you seen any good any companies that are doing a great job of just training people to be that person and and what's your experience with that because it just strikes me as i go around the country i'm a little pessimistic about it because yeah. the cuz most business owners want somebody walking in the door that knows everything and that they can just hand a job off to and say bring me back the check Whereas it just feels like the atmosphere has to be, I'm going to take some raw material and train them into being what I want them to be.
2: Yeah, so I'm with you there. And, and to your question, I really haven't seen more than a handful of companies that are doing this in a planned manner, right? Right, They're Doing it on purpose. Some, some of them, I would say, are you know, providing some good mentoring and helping carpenters get closer to being lead carpenters. I think part of the challenge, Tim, might be, and, and you might have run, you, you probably run into this too, uh, a lot of fake titles out there, right? The, I had a lead carpenter yesterday, he left, so the guy who wasn't a lead carpenter yesterday, today, I'm calling him, he's a lead carpenter, <laughs> right? Because I pinned right. the badge on his chest, like all of a sudden he's a lead carpenter. My opinion is you have to earn that
1: by showing that you
2: can actually run a job.
1: Right, right, yeah, and that's a that's a real challenge because it's not just the lead carpenters, it's like every position within a production department, they take a lead carpenter and say, you're now the production manager, right? It's like, ah, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. Anyway, so that's a, that's a real challenge. So let's kind of break it out a little bit here. Um, you know, we talk a lot about millennials and things like that. And one of the things that, again, I'm I've been a little bit discouraged by going to some conferences and you sit in, a, a seminar and people make very disparaging remarks about millennials, how they don't want to work and they don't care and they don't, you know, all they want to do is sit and push buttons on a computer. And and it's like, and then I go to another seminar and the the instructor says, how many people here are millennials? And like half the room raises their hand and they're at a construction conference. And so how do we how do we grab these people? that we call millennials and get them into our businesses and get them to where they want to be part of our, our industry.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, probably like, I don't know, the, the things you were just saying about the millennials are probably the same stuff our parents were saying about us. King, right. Yeah. I so think I, that's that, right. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, my, myself, I, I don't think we should blame millennials Myself, I think we need to take the responsibility to figure out, like, what motivates those people, right? You and I, from a similar generation, maybe the way we grew up, you know, we, we look at things similarly, but we definitely looked at those things differently than our parents did. Definitely. So I think in order to take advantage of what the uh, millennials have to offer to our industry, we've got to look at ways, and I don't mean bend over backwards, but look at ways and say, all right, well, then what would work for them? What do I maybe need to do different And you know, one of the things that I think is just a big-picture thing on this, Tim, is the millennials saw, you know, our peers in some ways maybe, you know, worked for years at the same location. The uh, recession came around and the jobs just went away, along with their retirement funding, you know, just just disappeared. It's gone. So all those promises that were there, you know, you have a job forever, uh, those millennials saw what happened to their parents, and they're, they're gun-shy on that. And they're thinking, you know, If a contractor tells them, hey, oh, yeah, I can help you advance, you can become a lead carpenter here. All right, well, show me the path. What is the path? Oh, don't worry, we'll take care of you, right? There is no path. So I think one big thing that would be good if you want to attract millennials is show them how they can advance, how they can measure their advancing and hold us accountable as business owners, say, in the industry, and then vice versa. What is the way that we're going to hold them accountable to, to growing so that they'll know? I, I think they want to know. They don't want to just take for granted that we're going to help them grow in their careers. They want to see something they can, you know, check off the boxes and know they're getting. It.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of assuming and tell me if I'm right, that this also has to be uh, something more than, well, you can carry plywood and dig ditches for two years <laughs> and then we'll see how things are going and we might let you then. Pick up a saw, because I think that was the way it used to be. Yeah, we got to come up with some ways, uh, depending on the millennial, right? Because we, you know, I think part
2: of the risk in our country today is we try to put everybody in a bucket like they're all the same and they're not. Right. So I think for some of them, they want to see that uh, career path. Right. They want to see because they want to get ahead. You know, others, uh, I don't know, like my daughter. My, my daughter seems to, you know, as much as I had a mission trying to help this industry, my, my big thing was, you know, helping people understand markup. If I can help one more key person every day, it's great, right? So my daughter seems to want to help, you know, save the world from ourselves in terms of um, how we protect the environment and things like that. Right. So there are plenty of millennials that, that think that. way. Right? And man, so what if, the, you know, your company was uh, kind of, you know, deep energy retrofits? Uh, maybe you're into green building in some ways or at least, uh, you know, trying to be green in an industry that might be challenged doing that. Certain millennials might go, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to learn how to do that so that, you know, not only will I be earning a good living, but I'm helping the, uh, the world, the planet or my fellow human beings at the same time would just be, you know, one example of looking at what motivates them. How do you take that advantage of that to, to help them and help your company at the same time?
1: Yeah. So I think it's huge for us to get, I don't know what you call it outside of ourselves. Cause you're dead on with the idea that certain things that motivate me, uh, certainly don't motivate my son and my daughter a little bit the same, but not, not totally there. So it's like, stopping and saying what is the instead of downgrading them and degrading them it's like what is it that that floats their boat what is it that gets them going and can we develop something that would would bring that in so that kind of leads me to another question about culture and I hear about you got to have a great culture you got to build a culture that everybody loves and I kind of ask the question like what is culture? You know, what, how do you define that? I'm kind of black and white, right? And I want to know, like, is there a definition? So maybe if you, if you have any thought on that, and then maybe like, what kind of culture have you seen, or do you understand would keep people that, um, might be drawn someplace else by a 50 cents an hour? Uh, pay increase, something like that. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about culture as you understand it with that relates to this. Yeah. So maybe I'm going to be as challenged as you, Tim, right? I'm kind of black and white on that.
2: (laughs) The two of us, the gray is on the top of our heads, right? Yeah. Yeah. Black and white. So I I find culture to be that, that guiding principle or say common understanding that a group of people have um, that, that helps them, all head, they say, in a similar direction or, say, have a similar way of interpreting uh, how they look at things around them. So for me, truthfully, what I've seen out there, not only in my own business, Tim, but in other successful businesses that have been able to keep employees, uh, is, a, is a culture where people actually not only feel that they belong there, but they have to earn it. They have to become part of it. They... They also can hold the other people on the team accountable and expect to be held accountable uh, in that same way from the people that they engage with on the team. So I personally think that that's a big one, right? And, and what I found was uh, profit sharing. I know we, we talked about, we said maybe we'd talk about that a little bit. So profit sharing, I found, uh, depending on how you do it now, can be a great way to do that, especially if, if everybody gets an equal share of the profit sharing, regardless of their wage or their position within the production team. So therefore, a great culture would be a floor sweeper Uh, reminding the carpenter that there's, you know, three materials we better get on the list and get ordered here so that we don't have to send somebody out there round trip to go get, you know, five-pound box of, you know, inch-and-a-quarter drywall screws. (laughs) So just as much as the lead carpenter can hold the floor sweeper accountable with the right culture, that floor sweeper, you know, I'm not going to say hold accountable like the lead carpenter's doing something wrong, but that floor sweeper has the ability to be part of that team and make it a group effort. So, hey, even the floor sweeper can protect the profit-sharing at an equal share as that lead carpenter, right, setting up the right culture. To me, giving a profit-sharing plan but a different amount to different people, I'm not going to say that can't work, but it might completely change the culture compared to perhaps a
1: profit-sharing plan where everybody got an equal share. So let, let's just clarify this just a little bit. So are, are, is this profit-sharing that you're talking about based on a part of the net profit. So let's just say we've got $10,000 and there's four employees. And so each one's going to get 2,500. Is that the way that you picture? this? How, flesh that out for us a little bit, because I'm sure people are really listening in on this because this is a hot topic. Uh, how does that look in maybe some numbers sense? Yeah, you know, so Tim, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a Reader's Digest version of it. Okay, but, but kind
2: of you know, like like writing articles in magazines, you only get eight hundred words to write an article. <laughs> right, you can't tell everybody everything. So I just want people to be careful here. Like, don't think this is not how your, your profit sharing plan is going to work. There's a lot of other pieces you've got to right. think about. Right, right. My big thing on it is you got to think ahead because what gets measured gets done. So you got to be really careful about what you decide to measure because it'll either make what you want to have happen and or people will find the holes in it and then they can go towards that, right? Because they're going by what's measured. So you've got to be careful. So what I find, Tim, actually works best is a profit-sharing plan where the money for the profit-sharing is covered by the overhead, covered by the gross profit. So in other words, let's just say, uh, I'll give an example one of my clients. One of my clients wanted to have $1 million of gross profit this year. So basically a 40 margin on his volume. Okay. A $1 million gross profit. So basically the idea would be is if his team hits a 40 margin and brings in a million dollars of gross profit, then he will provide them with profit sharing. And I believe, don't hold me to the numbers, right, but I believe he is willing to give them two percent of the gross profit earned provided they hit a million pay it out fifty percent of what's earned each quarter right. reserving the other fifty percent to the end of the year till yep. the books get settled and then if they have achieved a million they would get or, or more they would get the other ha- half of their earned um profit sharing but if the company doesn't hit the million dollars of gross profit, they don't get the other 50%.
1: Yeah, so this is, this is really cool. I love, I love this. And uh, a little bit of a variation from it is what I've been trying to encourage companies to do is to build in, in a little bit different sense, you're building in like the company has to keep X amount of dollars. The owner's going to take X amount of that. And then there's a there's a part of that gross profit that we're going to share with everybody else. And there are goals that you have to to hit. And I, I just think that's a fantastic way to look at it. You share the numbers, you share. Like maybe this is a great thing to follow up with. Like, How do you share those numbers so that people feel like they have a stake in it? What, what have you seen that really works where they're looking at it and they go like, uh, okay, we've got to beef it up a little bit to make sure we hit that million dollars in gross yeah. profit. Is there a, is there a, and again, we're trying to hit big picture things here, and, yeah. you know, nobody should go away from here, and I've got all the answers, but is there a, like, a simplified way of kind of hitting those numbers so that it makes sense to people? Yes. So,
2: but, but I guess what I would want to add, compliment to that, uh, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, Tim, is, there's no sense of bothering doing this unless you've got accurate financials, right? Okay. They've got to be right. And you've got to be estimating the same way your job costing, particularly labor. You can't estimate with burden labor, especially if you're guessing at a burden labor number, and then job costs with just wages and taxes, right? You're comparing apples to kumquat. So my suggestion <laughs> is prove to your business that a profit-sharing plan can work and you can measure it before you even suggest it to employees. Because if you offer it and they find any holes in how you manage your financials, they're just going to lose complete confidence in the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and I've <laughs> seen that. You've seen it. I've seen it talking to yep. carpenters all over the country. They go like, yeah, the, you know, Tim promised that we'd have a profit-sharing thing, but somehow we never make any money, and so there's never any profit to share. And you know what? I'm quite, I'm tired of talking about it. And that's – that <laughs> – you. And right away, your morale is gone. I mean, yeah. good morale. You've got bad morale. But, uh, yeah, so so really, really cool. So give us, you know, you mentioned the lead carpenter system. That's kind of how we got in touch with each other. And I do think well, we you – know, Tim, Tim, Tim before ahead. you get going, though. I didn't even answer the
2: question. All I did was set it up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> go for it. So so here's what I'm, uh, I'm uh, thinking is. It's just so stinking simple. Two thermometers side by side. I, I want you to picture, uh, like, you know when you drive by the church or something and you see the thermometer out there, they're trying to raise money, and they color it in, and you can watch them raising money. Simplest thing I've seen to do this. So you got two thermometers side by side. One is your volume in dollars, right. and the other one is your gross profit in dollars. They're both the same height, but they're measuring two different things. Right. But think about it. If, if, if your power margin is supposed to be 40 then the idea is every time you add money to the volume, you're adding money to the gross profit and and technically if you had perfect margin right on par, right. they would both climb at the same speed. So right. the idea is, when I remember now, you got to hit a million dollars in the sample plan I gave you of gross profit, not volume. So, Correct. So the idea would be we would watch the two thermometers. Now one is how many dollars of gross profit we got to earn, right? But here's the thing, if that volume one is climbing faster than my gross profit one, man, we must have slippage going on. We're not going to be hitting our number. On the other hand, if our gross profit uh, thermometer is climbing faster than the volume one, well, yeah, man, now we're doing good. And actually, you know what, even if we don't achieve our volume, we're going to achieve the gross profit, right? So just a simple thing that even the floor sweeper can get. He doesn't have to know the math and how to figure out a margin. And you know what? The uh, companies that I work with that are doing this, they're like looking forward to the Friday production meeting or some of them. It's every other week or whatever. But they want to know. They want to see the number. So it's like don't even tell them what the number is. Wait until you get in the meeting and they're all excited about it. And then you get to draw it in. Or How about this? One of them actually lets one of the employees color in the thermometer to the new height while everybody's watching. And they're like, what are we going to do? And, you know, then they can speculate, oh, if we just do this, this, and this, we can get it up next week. Or, you know what, look, we got this cushion now because of what we did. So we got a cushion in case one of our jobs goes south on us, right? But that weekly review, the quarterly payouts on the 50%. And then another thing is, right, is how about this? If you want to keep your employees, that's part of what we're talking about today. Think about it. You don't stay until... After the plan is over, you don't stay the whole year. You forfeit any possible fifty percent when you leave. Right. That'll get a guy to think twice before he, you know
1: decides to just walk off the job. Right. So I think there's a huge benefit to having this extra pay not associated with um, dollars per hour. In other words, if I'm thinking about going to another company. And I'm, I, you know, get 20 bucks an hour there instead of 18. If I can hit my bonus plus a little bit more, the possibility of me making 21 an hour where I am because my bonus, I can influence that bonus is so much better than the than, you know, going someplace else. So I think that's a great way to do it in terms of the profit sharing. So I love the visual. So, I love that visual thing as opposed to handing out, you know, eight and a half by 11 computer printed numbers and things like that and saying, okay, look down here, we got this number and that number. I love that visual thermometer kind of concept there. That's, uh, I think, uh, fantastic. So, let's just kind of, you mentioned the lead carpenter system uh, early on and just kind of give us some of the places where you've seen companies have... um, Maybe thought they were doing the lead carpenter system, but they weren't doing it. And then, what are some of the alternatives to that as you see it?
2: Yeah. So you know what I'm thinking when you ask me that question, Tim. Back back in December, um, I did a uh, the presentation at our Eastern Massinaii chapter, and it was uh, titled. Um, creating and making money with a real lead carpenter system okay uh, part of the motivation was to uh get the certification program a little more interest in it right yeah and uh, so i said you know I, I love this stuff i believe in it i think it was great for me and you know uh, part of uh, my business and my ability the value i created to sell it i thought that the system was a huge part of that so i volunteered to do it you know help, help them out well one of the things i did was i first said well how many of you are using lead carpenters? and a majority of uh, hands in the room went up and then i said all right how many of you that say you have lead carpenters actually share the estimate with the lead carpenter? And like a tenth of them raise their hands. Right. So I, I, I just being the black and white guy that I am, <laughs> but I think, well, they, how is it that they're lead carpenters if you don't even give them the estimate? How can they produce the job to budget and schedule if you don't even give them the estimate? Right. So. Right. I'm sorry, man. There was a whole bunch of guys in there that thought they were lead carpenters. And I think when they left, they realized they weren't lead carpenters and there was a bigger opportunity out there for them.
1: Yeah. So, so basically what we're saying is that many companies have that title, like you illustrated earlier, but Mm -hmm. they're not really living out the full potential and the chances of them getting all the information from a, from a, uh, an estimate or all the, if they're not getting the estimate, I guess what I'm trying to say is if they're not getting the estimate, they're probably not getting all the scope of work. They're probably not getting subcontracts from subcontractors. They're probably not getting all the other information that they need to really manage that project. So what, what happens in a business like that? Well, they pretend to have a lead carpenter system.
2: And I think that the... Uh... I don't know, I'm not gonna say the people that think they're lead carpenters pretend they're lead carpenters, because I don't think they pretend them. They just they just don't know the difference, right? Right. Because our industry and their company hasn't told them what a real lead carpenter is. Right. So I think that's you know part of that challenge and then including, I don't know, if, if if I think I'm a lead carpenter at a company where really it's not a lead carpenter system. When I see a job available somewhere else and I want to go over there, yeah, I'm a lead carpenter until I get interviewed by a company that really has a lead carpenter system. And then I find out I'm just a carpenter who's working underneath the production supervisor that's just delegating activities to me. And I really have no control over the job myself. So I I can't put my name on it that I
1: manage that job. No, I work on that job. See that trim? I did that trim. Yeah, so this is getting back to that motivation and people really do want to have responsibility and own something. And yet, quite often, business owners are short-circuiting that. And so people do go looking for responsibility. They're going to go look for a place that will actually give them the job completely and let them manage and run that job. So part of the strategy of really keeping good employees, the ones you really want to keep, is to make sure that they have some responsibility, and that they can actually own that project.
2: Yeah, you
1: know. So, Tim,
2: here's what I've, I've found. Right, is uh, you and, uh, gosh, what was his name now, Jim? Who's the gentleman you work with at uh, Nari when you put the lead carpenter program together, Jim? What was his name? Do I remember? don't remember. You're you're taxing my brain here, bro. Yeah. So the two of us. That that's all right. So anyway, you guys did an awesome job, right, putting it together. And uh, truthfully, I think uh, t- it stood the test of time. And I, I can't argue with it at all. I'm-, I'm the kind of guy that everything I get, you know, I, I can find a better way to do it. But <laughs> it stood the test of time, right? So I'm staring at it right now. Responsibilities of elite carpenter. So I'm not saying that this is a full written job description, but Nari's bullet points here. Customer satisfaction. Material takeoffs and orders. Job site supervision, protection, cleanliness, and safety. Carpentry labor supervision and scheduling of subcontractors, building code inspections, and project paperwork. Now, there's plenty of things that go underneath those categories, but that's it, man. And if you know what, if you've got a guy that's not doing all of that stuff, then that isn't a lead carpenter, right? Right. It's something else. I don't want to put the guy down, right? Because he may be on the path, but you're not a lead carpenter yet. You shouldn't be wearing the badge. That's my opinion on it.
1: Yeah. So Sean, as we start to wrap things up here, Maybe a, a little golden nugget for everybody about uh, just something that they can take away from this to get inspired to either run their business a little more effectively or straighten out something in production or, or something like that. Just a, a little a little tidbit here to finish things off.
2: Well, you know what, Tim? I guess for me, if, if you want lead carpenters right to our point earlier where they don't exist, so you're going to have to create them. I think it's creating a path for how that can happen at your business in a way that you can share that path with the people that would like the opportunity. So I mentioned to you a uh, pay grid that I uh, help some of my clients with. So, so what I would want you to picture, right? Just simply, unfortunately, we, you know, we don't have the visuals here on a podcast, right? right? But picture a, you know, a, a, a graph where. Uh, an axis, rather, with on the left side column, say, are you graduate the skills that you expect a carpenter to go through in his career from floor sweep to master, right? Usually, we break it out into six levels somehow. Okay, and then going across the top of the page, like the headers of the columns, six graduations of different job site management skills that a person would go from, from able to manage myself to able to manage multiple projects at the same time, say, as a lead carpenter. Good. The idea is the intersecting point of your trade skills and your management skills would indicate what the company would be willing to pay you if you met that description. So if an employee looked at it and said, all right, I could become a master carpenter, take no responsibility on the job and I don't know, depending on the, where you are in the country, maybe you get to like 30 bucks an hour. Right. But if I can be a, a pretty good carpenter, but a damn good project manager, I might be making 40 bucks an hour and I might be managing the master carpenters. Right. Right. So it was to show them. And, and what I found in my own business was there were guys, young guys, that the, the carpentry, the trade skills, you know, they take a lot of time to home. It's, it's physical practice. But they were extremely smart about construction and learning the sequence and managing customers. Well, that guy, maybe his trade skills were going to take a while to catch up, but his ability to manage a job and run circles or, you know, around the, the job, keeping it on, in, in line, that guy excelled. In a, in a six-year period, went from a floor sweeper to one of our best lead carpenters, got married, had a second kid on the way, and owned a <laughs> home. Right, and, and he didn't even hadn't even met the girl when he first you know started working for so him. It can be a huge opportunity for the right person at the right company.
1: Yeah, so that that's fantastic. And just to kind of reinforce that, I've said this on a number of occasions. I personally am not the world's greatest carpenter. I can get the work done, and I can do a good job. But I'm a really good job manager, and it took me way beyond just being able to. Uh, you know, do the carpentry work. So great insight, Sean. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, thanks to Remodeler's Advantage, not only for the opportunity that I get today, but for all that you folks have done for the industry and helping remodelers. I I really appreciate what you guys do.
0: Thank you. All right, Sean, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Take care. Well, Tim, uh, that was so good, I was pretty much left speechless. I'm just sitting back watching two legends in my eyes uh, go back and forth. And Sean just seems to be somebody, I mean, he's unstumpable in terms of his, the information capacity he has with the industry. It's just great to hear.
1: Yes. It's, you know, we didn't title this podcast yeah. at all. It's just with Sean McCadden and Part of the reason for that is we knew we would get lots of different stuff. We weren't looking for one specific thing. A couple of things that stood out to me was just the profit-sharing discussion and trying to get a good handle on that. I know a lot of companies have tried this. It's worked in some cases. In other cases, it doesn't work at all. It becomes a big argument. I think he made some great points in there about getting good financial information, the visual idea instead of just like numbers, the visual with the thermometers I thought was, was incredible. And the other thing that I really want to emphasize is this grid. Now I'd heard Sean had this grid and I had seen it in passing one time and I'm really glad he brought it up. But the intersection of on the grid between carpentry skills and management skills And then that relating to dollars and cents and taking that to a skilled carpenter or to somebody and saying, look, here's where you can place on the pay scale as opposed to just randomly saying, oh, oh, you're a lead carpenter. That's $35 an hour when they really can't do the job. And so you end up paying a lot of money for somebody who can't do the job. And so this visual is so so critical for me
0: yeah and tim I, in the beginning of the podcast i thought it was just incredible because you and i were talking earlier today about uh mindset and potential crutches that we tell each other in in our business and one of the first things sean said is define what is good help because yeah. you hear it all the time i hear it all the time yeah what is good help is it about running a job is it the education system so it's you know it's really making a note of those stories or or things that you're telling yourself and really try to, uh, you know, take a deeper look at that as well as the millennial, you know, to me seems to be a crutch where it just, you know, I can't find good help because of the millennial, you know, whatever it is, but you just have to take a look at it.
1: Yeah. And I think what Sean was saying and what I've been saying is, you know, what, I. you just have to make something happen you just have to say you know what we have Millennials now they are motivated differently than us uh, the Gen Xers or the baby boomers and so I as a business owner if I'm going to have employees of any kind have to think about how do I address this situation now I can't keep using that as an excuse
0: Yep. Well, that was, that was truly awesome. And once again, we want to thank Sean McCadden for joining us today. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Tim Fowler Show.
1: And remember, we're helping the bottom line through
0: production training. This has been another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com slash consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, Please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.